0: O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the highest heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. You have made me see many troubles and calamities, will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. Those are verses 17 to 21 of Psalm 71, which along with Psalm 70 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, September the 16th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We've got uh, the continuing saga of Ahab, which will end today. The king of the northern kingdom after the split after Solomon. And so we're going we're to read about his demise today. Then we're also in uh, the epistle to, first epistle to the Corinthian church, chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 3, verse 15, and also in the gospel of, according to Matthew, chapter 5, the first 10 verses of that. So, here we go. We're going to jump into the story of Ahab. And so what we're told is the king of jo- Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, went up to Ramoth-Gilead because that was is those people were Israelites who lived in Ramoth-Gilead and so the king of Israel had proposed that they liberate Ramoth-Gilead from Syria who had dominated them until this time. And before they go, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, that's Ahab again, um says to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I'll disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. I, I'm not sure that if Jehoshaphat is that incredibly naive, but it says something horrible about Ahab, because what he's doing here is, is that he is making the king appear to be the king of everything. And he he knows that what he's trying to accomplish here is that he will trick the Syrians into believing that Jehoshaphat, who is dressed in his kingly robes, is, in fact, Ahab. And so whether Jehoshaphat is just naive and agrees to do this, it's impossible to tell. So the king did that. The king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, who is not the king of Israel, they said, it's surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it wasn't the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. So he cried out, and they figured, oh my gosh, this is actually not the king of Israel. And so they drew back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, "Take, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I'm wounded. So this was just a a, a complete fluke, except for, well, we know it's nothing is a complete fluke, that it was God's will, and therefore it happened. So it seemed to be a thing that happened at random. Nobody was shooting at him because he was disguised. So nobody knew that he was the king. It just happened that way. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. That's a detail we're going to need in a minute, and it's a detail that was, that was prophesied by Micaiah prior to, to this whole incident. At about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country, which is exactly what Micaiah had prophesied, that, that they would be like sheep without a shepherd and they would scatter to their own places. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, where his capital was, and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot, the one where his blood was, by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood in accordance with Micaiah's prophecy. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. And now we're going to drop back and, and look at just a little bit of Jehoshaphat. The son of Asa began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of King Ahab of Israel. He was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shili. He walked in all the way of his Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from doing it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet... The high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He also made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoshaphat was a good king. However, he didn't take down the high places. And those high places shouldn't have existed because all worship should have happened in Jerusalem. So the high places were where they were sacrificing to God's other than Yahweh so jehoshaphat as good as he was wasn't as good as he should have been so we see this the the end of ahab the wicked king but but he was really just ruling in in many ways by proxy for his wife jezebel and so we've still got the same problem that exists there <clears throat> he only cared about himself. That was the only thing that he ever cared about. He, he was willing to take Naboth's vineyard, and he was willing to do all kinds of other things, including here, uh, potentially costing Jehoshaphat his life by this ruse that he uh, proposed that they try and play on the Syrians. And so the, the in contrast, what we have is the gospel and the epistle today, where, where the concern is, is, the word is not to be concerned about yourself and your own greatness. It's, it's to be consumed with the Lord. And so in, in Matthew's gospel, what we, what we have today are the Beatitudes. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And we don't know if that's the twelve or if it's a much larger group, because we haven't seen him call all the twelve yet. And so disciples is sort of a fungible term. Sometimes it means the twelve, but then other times it means a larger group of people. And so he begins to open his mouth and teach them here, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In these Beatitudes, Jesus is turning the world upside down. What he's saying is if you're poor in spirit, if you're crushed in some ways in in your spirit because of your circumstances or the circumstances of, of those around you if you're seeing the reality of the world the broken by sin he says yours is the kingdom of heaven this is not a time to, to be happy and to rejoice. We live in a world that's broken by sin, and the consequences of that sin mean misery for many in this world. And so we need to be aware of the suffering around us. Even if we're not suffering, we need to constantly be aware that while we might be celebrating, there are far more people who are in in pain and suffering and difficulty in this life. And so he's basically saying, blessed are you people who have your eyes open and who care about something beyond yourselves because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're not looking for your kingdom here on earth. You're looking for something else. And so you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for this. You'll be comforted. And and so that means in, in a personal sense, but it means in that larger sense of mourning over the way things are. You know, way more often people are inclined to ask the question, well, where is God and why are things the way they are? If he's such a good God, why are things the way they are? If he weren't a good God, things would be a lot worse. That's the honest truth. But, but what we need to do is we do need to mourn over the human condition and the human situation and the, the suffering in this world. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And what does it mean to be meek? It means to be um, one who is willing to, to accept a lower standard a standard of treatment is what I mean, because Jesus will tell the parables or tell stories or teachings of don't take the head place at the table. You know, take take that more humble place. Um, When you come before the Lord, come before him with humility and meekness. So it's a meekness before the Lord and and a willingness to be taught and to understand. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is those people who are pursuing sanctification in this life, who are pursuing those things, righteousness. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, he says, you'll be satisfied And so are we hungering and thirsting for the right things? Because or our our hungers and our thirsts for things that never satisfy us and never could satisfy us, it will only beget further and further uh, hungers and thirsts. So hunger and thirst for the right things. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And Jesus goes on and on about this, right? I mean, he makes our forgiveness by God contingent upon our ability to forgive others and to have mercy on others. So if we are those people who give mercy, Jesus says, you'll be people who receive mercy. You'll know more about it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those, in, in essence, those who are seeking to see God. And they're 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 pure in heart in the sense that that they are, they're trustworthy people. They are who they appear to be. It's not being naive. It's being hopeful. It's it's being able to to be hopeful because of God. Not being naive. Not being deceived. It it, it I've known you know only a few people in my life who I would consider to be pure in heart, and I'm not one of them. Let's say that right up front. But but it, there's a I wish I were. I mean, I can get too calloused, I can get too wrapped up in too many other things, and because I get wrapped up in many things, then I'm not able to see God as often or as clearly as I would say that I would like to, or certainly not as often as it's possible that I could. But it's because my heart is is pulled in too many directions. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And it is our role, should be our role in this life, to be peacemakers. And we can do better at that if we follow Jesus' injunction to love our enemies. But we can also be better at that if we recognize the battles we fight are not personal battles, they're spiritual battles. And if we fight the right battle, then we'll be far better off, and we will be those people who become peacemakers because we will take pity on one another who are merely human, as Paul's going to say in this other uh, passage we're getting ready to look at, and then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, nobody I know wants to embrace that, um, but and he's not saying go out and seek it. He's he's just saying this is what will happen. But you are blessed even though you're persecuted. So in the in the epistle, Paul is saying the natural person doesn't expect accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we he says have the mind of Christ because we've been given the Holy Spirit therefore we can we have the mind of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and that goes back to the whole pure in heart issue and that is are we living from the spirit or are we allowing the spirit of the flesh to overcome the spirit of God within us he said I I brothers I, I couldn't address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh infants in Christ I fed you with milk not solid food for you weren't ready for it and even now you're not ready for you're still of the flesh while there's jealousy and strife among you you're of the flesh aren't you behaving only in a human way for when one says I follow Paul and another Apollos aren't you being merely human If you've got your sights set on me and set on other people, then then you're acting like other human beings. Your eyes are not fixed on Christ. They're fixed on your teachers. Man, can we say that's a problem in our day with celebrity preachers and the the Internet and television and everything else? Man, oh man, I know people who get upset if you even think about criticizing their favorite preacher. It's no, that's not the case. We're all... Um, under-reproach as teachers. We we are all subject to reproach as teachers because we can be wrong a- and we can fail in, in dramatic ways. If we're not preaching the cross of Christ, I talked to somebody about a year ago, a little bit longer than that now, who said that they hadn't been in church in a long time, but they had be, been listening to and reading one of the most popular preachers in America for the last couple of years. And she hadn't gone to church yet, but she did watch this guy every week and read all, every single one of his books. And, and she, said, she finished this up by saying to me, John, I don't, I don't know you know, what to make of Jesus. You know, Some people say this about him, some people say others. I mean, it's the same thing Jesus asked. What do men say about me? And she said, but, but I'm, I'm not worried about that. And I said, I've got to interrupt you here, and I wouldn't ordinarily do this, but because you brought it up, I have to. And what I have to say to you is that's the only question that's really important, and I'm sorry that the person you listen to hasn't made that apparent. Your eternal salvation hinges on what you make of Jesus, and I'm sorry your, your preacher hasn't forced you to that conclusion, that you have to make up your mind on that, because it's, it's for your good— I'm telling you this. It's, it's so that you'll have eternal life. And I'm sorry that your preacher hasn't made that clear. But then he says, what then is Apollos and what's Paul's Servants through whom you believe is the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. It's important work, but ultimately God gets all the credit for it. We're God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building. And then he goes on with that metaphor of the building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. What is the foundation? What is this milk that Paul's talking about? It's just this the unadorned, unvarnished, plain gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sin raised to to life that we might enjoy eternal life as well and the spirit poured out among us he said there's a lot more to know than that but you got to get that right first before you can move beyond that and he says so let each one take care how he builds upon the foundation that i laid no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is jesus christ Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And that's an Old Testament concept over and over again about the refiner's fire, revealing, burning away all the dross and leaving behind only that which is fit and that which is able to withstand in the fire. He said, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. So if you've done the right thing, if you've preached the right message, if you've given truth, if that's what you're building material is truth, then, then you'll get a reward for that. And if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, assuming that they're genuinely proclaiming the things that they have proclaimed. Paul and Jesus both are calling us to live lives with open eyes, and eyes that are fixed on him, and to realize that that our mission is the same mission that Jesus had, which is to make known the love of God, and we make Jesus known in order that people might know the Father and be willing and able to receive the Holy Spirit. We're not to live like Ahab did with our eyes fixed on ourselves and our own needs. We're to live beyond that because we were created to live beyond that and we're commanded to live beyond that.